0: like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. I, I, part of me feels really guilty for preaching a sermon like the one I'm about to preach on the day when we have the church picnic. It doesn't seem appropriate, because this, uh, this is pretty rough stuff that I have to talk about this morning. Um, thankfully, we sang this this really terrific hymn. What God ordains is always good leading into it. I, when, I was, when, when I was pastoring at Good Shepherd, there was a lady uh, there at the church who um, was her son her, her, her son, her husband was a retired LCMS pastor, and he had died. And she came to church, and she would sit in the pew, and she had bound manuscripts of his sermons, which during the sermon, she would open it up and read. And, uh, She's a huge fan of mine. And uh, <laughs> one time, I'm telling you, this This is the honest, honest truth. I'm telling you, this actually happened. I'm, I'll give you a verbatim quote. I, I preached a sermon. I was greeting people as they left. And you know, everybody says, hi, hi, have a good week. Nice sermon, that sort of thing. And she came by and she said, I'm telling you the truth. She said, sometimes the hymns are better than the sermon. She said that. And actually this morning, um, well, that was probably the case that day too, which is probably why she said it. But this morning, it's definitely the case. What God ordains is always good is basically kind of what uh, uh, I want to say this morning. That's the payout of the sermon. What God ordains is always good. Um, It it says everything, basically, that the Bible says about who God is. It affirms his sovereignty, but it also affirms his love. Um, Line in here about what God ordains is always good. His loving thought attends me. No poison can be in the cup that my physician sends me. I'm gonna come back to that image. I'm not gonna quote that again, but I'm gonna come back to that image at the, uh, at the end of the sermon. So where we're at in the story of the Bible is we've hit a turning point. The turning point between the, the, the promises of the Old Testament and the payout of the promises in the New Testament, Jesus. So God tells Adam and Eve, I'm gonna fix what you guys screwed up. He does it through Abraham and Abraham's family. He gives Abraham a covenant. And says, I'm going to use you to bring blessing, i.e. salvation, to the whole world. And I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to give you this offspring. And what I'm calling you and your family to do is to be my kingdom of priests. To represent me before the world. To be the image bearers that I called Adam and Eve to be, but they failed to be. If you fail in this, well, the Deuteronomy reading from this morning. And unfortunately, Israel fails, just like we fail." Israel fails to be the image bearers that God called them to be. And what happens is, is exile. God takes them out of the land, puts them into Babylon, shrinks their numbers down to real tiny, and basically leaves them with no land, no blessing. The promises seem to have failed. David's throne sits empty. David's line has been uh, imprisoned. What happens? When, When you get to the middle part of Psalms, that's the territory that we're in now, Psalm 88. It's basically telling the story, which is hopelessness. Now, look at Psalm 88 with me. This is maybe, this is maybe the darkest point in the whole Bible in, in terms of human emotions. This is more bleak than the book of Job because the book of Job ends with hope. It ends with God coming and repairing what's been damaged in Job's life and speaking with him. But look what's, if you're looking at your bulletin, you can, I'll tell you this, if you're looking at your Bible, you can see it for yourself. This is the whole of Psalm 88. There's no, it ends like this. You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. That's it. Fade to black. That's the end of, that's, that, 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 that's the end of the Psalm. There's no hope. It's just bleak. God, you've abandoned me and I'm done talking. Roll credits. What are we going to do with this? What are we going to do with a psalm like this? Now, the good news for me and you is, is that unlike the the, 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 uh, Haman, the, the psalmist of Psalm 88, you and I live on the other side of the cross. So we now know that the exile is over. The exile that he's living in, where he's separated from God in his presence, is over. God has returned home to live with his people. More on that in the upcoming weeks. However, it's still not completely over. We still live in this current evil age. And so everybody in here knows what it's like to suffer, to be in some sort of exile, to be hopeless, to be without, at times to be without a sense that, that anything will ever be right. All of us can identify with the psalmist of Psalm 88, which is why Psalm 88's in here. So this morning what I wanna do is I wanna talk about suffering from Psalm 88. I wanna talk about the deep reality of suffering I want to talk about the deep cause of suffering. And then finally, the deep reason for suffering. So first of all, the deep reality of suffering. The deep reality of suffering. Suffering is real. In fact, suffering is, the Bible insists, and a lot of other people who've lived human lives on this spinning globe have insisted as well. Suffering is the default mode of human existence. It, it, It is the baseline of our days in our lives. I'm not saying that nothing's ever good. But suffering is the way it's going to be. God told Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, if you rebel against me, there's gonna be suffering. Things in your life are going to go askew. There's going to be pain. There's gonna be relationship fracturing. There's gonna be death. There's gonna be futility at work. There's gonna be futility in friendships. Suffering is gonna be the default mode. And it's what happened when Adam and Eve rebelled against him. Other religions agree with this as well. If you know anything about Buddhism, you'll know that the first of the Buddha's Four Noble Truths is, all of life is suffering. He's spot on. He gets it way more than than Westerners like us would get it, is that life is brokenness. Life is suffering. Life is pain. Job, of course, agrees in the classic text in the book of Job, chapter five, verse seven. Man is born for suffering. As sure as sparks fly upward, man is born for suffering. We are born and we are suffering from the get go. C.S. Lewis talks about this quite a bit throughout his writings, but one of the famous texts where he talks about this is A Grief Observed, which he wrote uh, after his wife died. I was really grappling with that, that, the, 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 the deep pain of that loss. And he says, when he's grappling with the, the death of his wife, he says, We were promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, Blessed are they that mourn, and I accept it. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. It's the human lot to suffer. This is what if I want to be a human being, I'm going to suffer, he says. This is what I bargain for. Now, this is hard for us, especially for those of us who are American. It's hard for Haman and Psalm 88. But it's especially hard for those of us who are Americans, Westerners in general, is because we have it in our mind that there isn't a single problem that exists that can't be fixed if we're just hardworking enough and come up with a solution. So, problems in transportation. You build a bit bigger and faster vehicles to get us places. Promise in physical health. We have doctors who train to do really, really incredible things. Problems with mental health. We have medicine for that. We have therapy and counseling for that. And so when things go wrong, it just, it's not just that things are wrong. It's that there's, what's happening here? What's wrong with me? Why, why, isn't, why can't I fix this? And it's good every once in a while. I don't mean good in the like pleasant sense to circle back to what the Bible says about suffering and realize This is our default mode. I'm not saying be content with it. The psalmist in Psalm 88 is not content with it. But it is our default mode. It is is what we were born to. Lewis says this, talking about people who would use Christianity as a way to comfort people, to say they're there, they're there, it's going to be okay. He says, talk to me about the truth of religion and I'll listen gladly. Talk to me about the duty of religion and I'll listen submissively. But don't come talking to me about the consolations of religion, or I shall suspect that you don't understand. And he's right. I could stand up here and I could say, all your suffering, it's not real. Everything's gonna be fine. Just you know, get the joy of Jesus down, down, down in your heart, and everything will be good. And you would rightly look at me and say, liar. I'm not listening to that. You know too much. You've lived too much. You've experienced too much you know what it's like to live in the fall. Suffering is real and it's deep. The psalmist, I'm not gonna read Psalm 88 all over again, but it's the the whole psalm from beginning to end. And he says his life too. From my youth, he says, all this has been happening to me. I have always been suffering. It's our default mode. The deep reality of human life is suffering. Well, what's the deep cause of suffering? What causes suffering? I'm gonna give you three options. Two are unbiblical, and the third one's biblical. Option one, fatalism. God or the universe or fate is out to get you. Now, it's very, very broad. I mean, we can say fate. You can just make it random. You can make it existentialist. Harry's at high school. Harry's been assigned to read uh, the Ernest Hemingway novel, Farewell to Arms. Hemingway's an existentialist and I think I might have mentioned farewell to arms to you too. Angela and I, it's one of our our faves. Harry's reading it for the first time, writing this paper about it, and Harry's telling me about the points of his paper, and it's like reading Psalm 80. It's just bleakness. Farewell to arms. Hemingway writes this. It's a war story, and this guy in the war, he's off in the war. He goes AWOL. He gets himself out of the war. He meets this wonderful woman. They're having a baby. The very last scene of the book is him walking out of the hospital where his newborn child has died in childbirth and his wife has died on the operating table. This happens in the space of like the last three pages of the novel. The last scene is him walking out of the hospital in the rain by himself. So why does Hemingway write a novel that ends like that? Well, Hemingway believes, as an existentialist, fate in the universe is out to get you. The cause of evil, it's Hardwired into the whole universe. The other way to say this is God does it. We can say what, what what in the sense that like God's punishing you for your sin. That would be a God that's not good. And remember that your your good physician would never give you a cup that's full of poison. So the fatalistic, deterministic, and, and this is by the way, this is this is this version of Christianity is the version that atheists don't believe in. I can't believe in a God who would cause suffering, who would do evil things. And, and the images of a God who would just do bad stuff to people, kind of like Hemingway's fatalism, or the pagan gods, to blow whole armies up just on a whim. I can't believe in a God like that. Well, okay, so I, I don't believe in that God either. I don't believe in that God either. Which leads us to option number two. And I mentioned this last week, deism. God doesn't cause suffering. God's too good to cause suffering, he just doesn't stop it. He doesn't cause it. He just watches it and doesn't do anything to stop it. Well, this, this, goes, this is uh, about three or 400 years old, and this goes back to a lot of this. Have I talked to you guys about this before? The, the great Lisbon earthquake of 1755 was a watershed moment. Lisbon, it's on All Saints Day. All the Christians are in the churches in Lisbon lighting candles for their lost relatives who've died over the past year. Lisbon's hit with a massive earthquake, followed by a massive tidal wave. Thousands are killed in the earthquake. The earthquake also knocks over all these churches throughout the city, which are filled with candles, and ignites a massive citywide fire, which kills thousands and thousands and thousands of more. Lots of philosophers, including Voltaire, who wrote the novel Candide to grapple with this, basically said, okay, God could not have been in charge of this. So we have to believe in God because that's who we are. Not not yet at the point where we're ready to say, God doesn't exist. We believe in God, but he couldn't cause this. So what is he? He must be a God who's just up there, out there, minding his own business, kind of watching. He probably knows what's going on here, but he doesn't really feel, for whatever reason, like doing anything about it. But it's not his fault. It's not his fault. He just isn't, isn't doing anything about it. The problem with that is that it's a God that's not loving. If he has the power to fix things or to stop evil, but he doesn't do it, then he's not loving. Which leads us to the third option. Now listen, I want everybody to lock in. I cannot afford for you over the next five minutes to hear one sentence I say and not the other sentences, or else the information that you will be getting in your head will be damnable. This is, very trip, this is gonna be very tricky for me to, 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 to put the, all this together in a way that's biblical and in a way that's encouraging and that reflects what Psalm 88 is doing, So I want you to listen to me, and I want you not to stop, I'm not, this is, I just sound like my dad. I apologize, but please listen to me and don't stop for a few minutes, okay? What is the answer to Psalm 88? The psalmist, what does the psalmist believe about where suffering comes from? All right, let me show you. Verse six, the psalmist says to God, you have put me in the depths of the pit In the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Verse eight, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a whore to them. Verse 16, your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. Verse 18, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My my companions have become darkness. What's the psalmist answer to where troubles and suffering come from? God. God has done all this. God causes troubles and suffering. I know that's a hard pill to swallow, but just listen to me for a few minutes. First of all, for starters, this is not me. This is sacred scripture. Psalm 88 says this. So I might not understand this right, and you might not understand this right. In fact, it's almost certain that we are going to misunderstand Psalm 88 to some extent. As, as fallen human beings, but baseline is that this is in scripture for a reason, and one of the reasons is, is because the psalmist is convinced and wants us to know that suffering comes from the hand of God. Troubles come from the hand of God. Now, if we saw, if I like, I need you to keep listening, because if I stop there, I'm no better than a Christian veneer version of Hemingway, or Sartre, or the rest of the existentialist. But if I say to you. God doesn't cause suffering. I will be lying to you because Holy Scripture says that God does cause suffering. So, what are we going to do with this? How are we going to make sense of this? I have a friend. I have a friend, uh, friend, one of my best friends, went to college with him. He's a pastor, he's a Baptist pastor out east in um, New England. And um, when oh, college, we were in college together, played a lot of basketball, he had had a shoulder surgery from high school uh, playing football. And every once in a while, when we were playing basketball, his right shoulder would come out of socket. And it got to be where I was the one he would yell for. Because I happened to be close to him the first time I was there when it happened. I happened to be close to him. And he called me over and he walked me through how to put his shoulder back in socket. Like, I'm not, like, I'm not good at this. I don't watch when I get shots or anything like that. I'm not like a medical, I'd be a bad medical professional. So he walked me through it, and he didn't seem, he was like telling me what to do, didn't seem like he was in horrible pain, until I put my hand underneath his shoulder, and he was guiding me the whole way, lifted it up, and felt it slide back in place, and then like he was cussing and swearing at me. I see Kenzie's back here, physical therapist, she's like giving me knowing looks, uh, and it got to be where I would have to do that all the time, and I always dreaded it, because he, you know my best friend's laying on the ground one of my best friends laying on the ground and i have to reach my hand under him in intense pain like screaming at me i gave you the illustration last week about taking kate when she was little to the emergency room to have stitches put in her lip because the doc, the, the er doctor said it's not a big cut but where it is on her lip it'll scar if we don't give her stitches and so she got stitches and I, the doctor had me, we didn't do, you know, just local anesthesia. The doctor had me hold her down while he put a needle through her lip. And Kate is like crying and yelling. And she's looking at me with abandonment and betrayal in her eyes. Like, why are you doing this to me, Dad? And anybody, anybody, know who knows how, anybody who has kids knows how this is too, just on everyday level. Like, you tell your kid not to do something. Don't play with that don't touch that, don't go in the street. And they scream at you like you're the most evil person in the world. And you can tell them, look, you know those big metal things that go real fast up and down. If they ran into you, you would just be obliterated, a bloody mess everywhere. But that year and a half year old doesn't know just screaming at you because you're, you're hurting it. You're causing it to suffer. You're causing it to do what you don't wanna do. C.S. Lewis has a quote about dentists which captures this perfectly. Uh, it's something, something on the lines of, for those who say that they're not, for those who say that God can't cause suffering, they must never have been to the dentist, something like that. Now, why do I give you all those illustrations? And I kind of touched on this last week. Would you call me, uh, let me put this, I'll put it a different way. Was I causing my friend Colin to suffer when I put his shoulder back in socket? Was I causing Kate to suffer when I held her down and let this stranger put a needle through her lip. Are you causing your child to suffer when you drag them out of the street when they wanna play in there? Is the dentist causing you to suffer when the drill whirs? Yeah. That's true, isn't it? You're causing pain. You're causing somebody to go through something that's not pleasant for them. But, but, but it's, it's a suffering that's leading to a greater good. It's not Hemingway's suffering, which is just fatalistic and you can't escape it. It's not the suffering of the, that the pagan, cruel gods of, of, of ancient polytheism cause when they just feel like blowing up the Achaean army, and so they just do it because it's fun to watch people die. It's the kind of suffering that the surgeon does when he takes out the knife and cuts open your chest in order to repair your broken heart. It's a suffering that leads to wholeness and healthiness. God causes suffering. And if we try to avoid that, we're cutting ourselves off from the surgery that we need. We're cutting ourselves off from the dental repair that the great dentist wants to do on us. Well, God would never cause us to suffer. Yes, he does. He absolutely does. It comes from his hand. Because there's something wrong with this world. It's this huge, massive, growing and black cancer. And he's decided he's gonna do surgery on it. And that means we're all going to have to go under the knife. Now, it doesn't mean that all suffer. The great Lisbon earthquake was not caused by your sin. But all suffering is caused by all of our sin. And it doesn't even mean like that you know exactly what the cancer is that he's trying to get out of you. But he's determined to make this world right. And that process is going to be painful. God causes suffering. This is what God's up to you. Okay. Now, that's the deep cause of suffering is God himself. Now, some of you might say, okay, maybe so Psalm 88, he says God is doing it. Aaron, I I guess I I see what you're saying with your illustration about your kid and the dentist and whatnot. Maybe I can buy it, but it would help if I knew why I was suffering. Like, what is the, so that's the cause, God's the cause, but what's the reason? Like, what is it that he's trying to do to me? What, why is he causing me to suffer? Now, that question, why am I suffering, is unavoidable. Everybody asks that question. That question is built into us to ask Why is suffering happen? But there's no answer here in the text. The question's asked, look at verse 14. Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? God, why are you doing this? He knows the cause is God. He doesn't know why God's doing it though. So he goes to God and says, God, you're the cause, I get it. But why is this happening? And there's no answer. The Holy Spirit doesn't come around at the end of the Psalm and say, all right, moral of the story, Here's why this is happening to Haman. He doesn't. It. it just ends with darkness. Just sitting in suffering with no answers to the question why. Well, maybe if the smartest people in the world would put their heads together and try to figure this out, maybe they could get an answer to why. And this is actually, well, it's not, it hasn't happened yet. Because <laughs> the smartest people in the world have been grappling with the question of why For forever. This is the key question. The question of why is there suffering? Why, if there's a God who's almighty and all-loving, would there be suffering? That's the key question of human existence. Let me read you this quote from a philosopher named Susan Neiman. This is a book that she wrote called Evil in Modern Thought. Susan Neiman's not a Christian. She's a philosopher. But here's what she says. The problem of evil is the place where philosophy begins and it threatens to stop, she says, because there's no answer to it. It's possible to begin to worry, so here's, philosophy is good for some things, she says. It's possible to begin to worry about the difference between appearance and reality because you notice at one point that a stick looks refracted in a pool of water or because you have a dream that's so vivid you want to grasp one of its objects for a moment or two of sleepy half-consciousness. But you can wake up in your bed and slap your face if you have to. You can pull the stick out of the water if you're really in doubt were the problem of evil, the problem of Psalm 88, were the problem of evil that easy to dispel, the massive effort spent in hundreds of years of philosophy would be in need of explanation. So you see what she's saying? Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, Heidegger, Sartre, all the great philosophers, none of them know the answer to this. Why is suffering there? Why is suffering there? Nobody knows the answer to this. But Maybe the smartest people in the world aren't smart enough. Maybe if there were someone who were omniscient and knew everything, they would have the answer to why we suffer. Maybe that would be our hope. And once again, we're stumped. Because we've had somebody who's omniscient, haven't we? Jesus of Nazareth is God. He knows and sees everything. And yet... When the rubber hits the road, Jesus has the exact same question as Psalm 88. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what does he get? Silence. Same as Psalm 88. I'm not telling you not to ask the question why. It's unavoidable. What I'm telling you is that if Jesus himself doesn't know why, then you're not going to know why either. If Jesus himself finds himself asking why have you forsaken me to God and gets no answer, then you're not going to get an answer either. What is the deep reason of suffering? The deep reason is silence. I don't know. I don't know. But here's the good news. You don't really want a reason anyway. Right? I could tell my kid not to play in the street because those big fast metal things will make you go splat. They're not interested in that. They won't listen to that. If I could tell you, I can't. Let's say somebody could tell you, what's the, the, think about the thing that is the deepest cause of your suffering in life, and somebody could tell you this deep, elaborate reason, would you say, oh, that feels better? I'm not suffering now. Now I know. Has knowledge ever made you feel better? No. In fact, this is one of the things that this is when, I, when I talk to agnostics or atheists about this, and the, and the problem of evil comes up. This would happen every once in a while when I taught at Lewis and Clark. The problem of evil comes up. One of the things I would want to say to them is this. Okay, look, here's where we're at though. Like, you can't believe in a God who would allow suffering. I can't not believe in a God who would allow and live in suffering. Either way, you and I are both gonna suffer. You can say, you don't, I can't believe in a God who would allow suffering. But you're, that does not make you feel better. You can take away the reasons or give yourself a reason. It doesn't make you feel better. What makes you feel better? What actually cures the suffering? The fact that that omniscient one, the God of the universe, doesn't give me answers, but gives me himself. Look, presence is what we need. You don't want talking in your suffering, do you? Do you want reasons? Or do you want somebody who loves you infinitely to be present with you? There's this book written by a guy named Joe Bailey, Christian guy, Uh, a couple of decades ago. And the name of the book was called The View from a Hearse. He and his wife lost three of their sons. And he says this, I was sitting torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, and of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I wished he would go away, and he finally did. Another came and he sat beside me. He didn't talk at all. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more. He listened when I said something. He answered briefly. He prayed simply and left. And I hated to see him go. That's who you want with you when you're suffering. Someone who loves you enough to sit with you and walk through it with you. To not be put off by your suffering. To embrace it with you. To not try and dissipate it with words. To not try and paper over it with Reasons, but to just sit with you in the middle of the grief and experience it with you. Now, I can do that for you. I hope I can, and I hope you can do it for me. It's good, but it's not as good as if somebody who actually is the God of the universe can sit with me in it as well. Here's the story of the Bible. Here's where Psalm 88's going. And actually, Psalm 88, it begins with, God, you're my salvation. So it's the psalmist knows. The God of the universe sits with you in the middle of your suffering. Think of anything, any suffering that you've done from when you were a little kid and your parents said, don't point in the street, till that moment when you're laying there in the hospital and you realize, this is it, I'm dying. And all the loss in between, think of all the suffering in the world, not for, I'm talking to you, those of you who are Christians, not one bit of that suffering has happened outside of the cross of Jesus Christ. You, and all of that suffering, are with Jesus on the cross. You, and all of that suffering, have the crucified Jesus with you, giving you answers and reasons. Now, that would do you no good. Walking with you, being with you, present with you. And unlike me, who, who hopefully will be with you in your suffering, he actually rose from the dead, which guarantees that through that suffering, the great surgery is happening. And when you walk out of it, you'll be healed. That through that suffering, your bad teeth are getting repaired. Through that suffering, the God of the universe is fixing and healing you. That's the message of some. This is is the deep reason of suffering is that I don't have a reason for you. All I have is a person. You don't want reasons. You want a person. You don't want ration. You want presence. That's what our heart really wants. Jesus gives that to us. He is with you now. He is suffering with you now. Lean on him. Soak yourself in his presence. Don't try to run from your grief. Do not waste your grief. Don't try and paper over it. And try and make it go away and try and hurry through it. It's the thing that connects you to the suffering Jesus. It's the thing that makes the crucified Christ real. Live in it now. As we come to the rail now and celebrate the Lord's Supper, I want those of us who are believers who are going to be here, think about this and dwell upon this, is that I am bringing my suffering to the one who is also suffering right along with me. I am not alone. He might not tell me why this is happening, but he is here all the time with me. Let's pray. God, you know we need your presence. Give it to us now. You've been with us in word, now be with us in sacrament. And may your name be glorified because of it. We pray this in your name, amen.